Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Pandora, question. Have you ever played the lottery? Can't believe you've come in to this episode with that. Uh, Yes, I think I did. Um, I think I've done scratch cards maybe like 10 years ago. Oh yeah, my housemate was addicted to those. So I was walking down Camden Road last week it was right before lockdown happened for the second time on the Wednesday. So I went out for a final outdoor lunch and a bird shat on me. Oh, yeah, I've had that. And I went into a cafe on Camden Road just to buy some water and get a napkin to to wipe it off. And the cafe owner was like, that's really, really lucky. You should play the Euro Millions tonight. So in my, you know cinematic head I was like I just decided I was about to win the Euro Millions great idea I'm gonna go get a ticket and I said if and when I win you and I will split the money he was like great I'll see you on the other side of lockdown and I went and got this ticket and I don't know how people put themselves through this with the lottery every week I just knew I was going to win millions of pounds I just absolutely knew it do you know how much I won one pound none Absolutely nothing. It's a disgrace. Pathetic. I'm really angry about it. I just don't know how people put themselves through this. My dad does it every week. Do they must just think they're not going to win. I just thought I might have beginner's luck. I think that's what brings a lot of people to the lottery and brings them back each week is this entirely false sense of one's own luck. Yeah. Anyway, that's the post-election coverage you've been looking for on the high-low. The world won the Euro Millions this week, many could say. Couldn't they, Panda? (laughs) We did. What a week. Some good news at last. The obese turtle, Anderson Cooper, called him. His days are numbered. That speech from the White House, where the channels actually stopped broadcasting, had some serious shades of student who's been at a house party for five days doing too much ketamine and thinks he's discovered the upside down. (laughs) Did it not? Um, I actually didn't see that. I didn't see the the cameras cut. So that was mid... That was mid-vote counting. That was mid when everything was just... A roller coaster of emotion. While you were on your lottery roller coaster, I think maybe the rest of the rest of the world was on this roller coaster. And for anyone who didn't see the obese turtle clip, here is the CNN news anchor Anderson Cooper coining that phrase. We see him like an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, realizing his time is over. He's actually since said he regrets saying that in the heat of the moment as 
He doesn't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be a spoil sport, but I don't know how much I loved that. I do think, particularly when a public figure has so many hateful things that they're saying or, you know, such evidence of misconduct or malpractice or just plain idiocy. I think to comment on their appearance is just, really? I don't know. I don't don't love going first for the appearance when we're ripping someone apart because... It's a distraction, isn't it? It's a distraction beyond it being offensive. It just doesn't matter. Like it's a distraction. I just think it's like, I, I, don't, I think we really think we have to move past it. That's probably why he said he regrets it because he's not yeah. a, I don't think that's particularly his style. I do actually really want a turtle though, or a tortoise because um, I found out actually earlier today doing some very important research that you um, have to oil them after you give them a bath if you have a tortoise. Aww. I've always really wanted a tortoise. I think they're quite low maintenance. They're low maintenance. They hibernate for a really long time and they're like a family companion forever. Like Zadie's kids will be mates with that tortoise. That's kind of magic. They move really fast. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, they're really speedy. Can I ask one more question about the tortoise? What would you call it? I would rip off Eloise from the plaza, and I would call my turtle slash tortoise Skippity. And Skippity. like Eloise, I would also make it for sneakers. <laughs> I'd make some turtle high tops. Can I say I'm really up for this idea? I really, really think you should see this through. In fact, I remember Claudia Winkleman in her book, she says they have a family tortoise, and it's one of the things that she really highly recommends. Not sure they're compatible with a cat. Anyway. Oh, no, no, they're not. Yeah, you're right, they're not. My favourite on-air gaffe in the last week is from the journalist Matthew Amroliwala. Let me just put up a tweet that uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, has just uh, put out because... Uh, uh, Theresa May, sorry. Uh, um... Someone tweeted, We didn't think 2020 could get more bizarre, but the BBC bringing Margaret Thatcher back from the grave to tweet is something else. <laughs> Poor man, he must have been exhausted. Well, this must be followed by two other golden gaffes from the last week. The first being poor old Matt Frey signing off from the wrong news channel while reporting from Washington after the results came in. The man who's been running the country huddled in the White House with his family. The question, who will tell him those words that he made famous? Mr. President, you're fired. Matt Frey, BBC News, Channel 4 News, Washington. Good evening. Told you, exhaustion does dangerous things on live TV. I know, bless him, he tweeted, apologies to all my Channel 4 bosses and viewers. So exhausted, long-term memory kicking in on day of history, friendly ghosts of BBC past. Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) I love the kiss. I know. And then the second gaffe, which everyone has been talking about, is Trump outside the Four Seasons. Have you heard about this? (laughs) After the news of Biden's victory was announced, Trump said that he would be holding a press conference to discuss voter fraud. And he tweeted that it would be held at the Four Seasons Philadelphia. So obviously everyone assumed it would be the luxury hotel. The president was forced to clarify that he was referring to a garden centre in Philadelphia, which is situated deliciously next to Fantasy Island Adult Books and Delaware Valley Cremation Centre. 
The Four Seasons Total Landscaping Centre has capitalised on their memification by selling Trump-themed merchandise such as Make America Rake Again as a sticker or a Lawn and Order mask. <laughs> Do you know why that happened? No, what happened? It's because Rudy Giuliani booked the wrong Four Seasons, so then they, <laughs> they like had to go ahead. <laughs> So, so it, it was not deliberate, I don't think. But yeah, I know they're understandably dining out on that. Very quick merch turnaround though. Bravo. Uh, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. Very entrepreneurial. I really enjoyed something that Newsnight policy editor Lewis Goodall was doing last week. He was sharing daily screenshots of his mum's WhatsApp messages. And he's very, <laughs> he's very tolerant with her as she gets um, increasingly exasperated. So this was from day three. Son, I went to sleep thinking it would be sorted and OMG, I woke up and it was exactly the same. It's bonkers. He wrote, she's getting <laughs> angrier, folks, but like the rest of us, she can't stop watching. 10 days in Georgia to get the vote in. Are they being serious, son? The text language is very good as well, by the way. It's starting to get right <laughs> on my nerves now. Why do I find it obsessive watching? It's because of you, Lewis, all the years staying up watching elections. And then he says, mum on day four, can't deal. She writes, Honestly, it's ridiculous there isn't a result yet, son, don't you think? He goes, ha, huh, it's a big country. <laughs> well, that's no excuse. And then this was mum's take on the idea the election result could go to court. When will we know, son? Possibly not even tomorrow if it's close. Trump will take it to court. OMG, what a palaver. <laughs> <laughs> mums are really having their moment in the spotlight at the moment, I think, aren't they? Mums on WhatsApp. Never gets old for me. Before we move on from election chat, I wanted to ask you a question that was posed to me by my friend Lauren on WhatsApp. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. If you were a political candidate, what would your walk-on campaign victory music choices be, do you think? Because, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by this phenomena of, of there being a song that aligns with the campaign. And I wondered what you think yours would be. I just always think of R-E-S-P-E-C-T by Aretha Franklin. I think that would be a great one. It wouldn't be the strangest one chosen. So I went into a bit of a election song history hole <laughs> online. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stranger holes have been dug. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of it recently when I was watching that Murdoch documentary. And they showed footage of Blair's landslide victory, to which the soundtrack was D-Ream, Things Can Only Get Better. Do you remember that? Hmm. No, I don't. I really remember that song being like on the telly and everywhere during that campaign. In 2005, Blair's anthem was Beautiful Day by U2. They also, very strangely, used Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet. <laughs> very odd. So Britain's gonna be his girl. So weird. He also apparently, there's like a whole NME article about all the songs that Blair used uh, to kind of bolster his various campaigns. But beyond campaigns, just bolster his image. It's actually like very telling, I think, that music was so important for that prime minister. He said in interviews before that he's a massive muso music fan. And when you think that in history, you know, when we think of Cool Britannia and we think of what he represented in terms of like a new type of Labour. He was very much kind of associated with modernity and regeneration, even the fact that he had a baby while he was in Downing Street. The idea that he had this like great big pop soundtrack 
makes loads of sense. And weirdly, one of the songs that um, he used as just like ubiquitous anthem was um, Get This Party Started by Pink. Very weird. That is hilarious. In 2004, he used Right Here, Right Now by Fatboy Slim to walk out at the Labour Party conference. Interestingly, Fatboy Slim features stateside as well because Al Gore used Praise You in 2000. Epic tune. Some other eccentric choices. YMCA for Trump in 2020, as we all remember. And I find it very prophetic that in 2016, one of his songs was the fairly morose You Can't Always Get What You Want by the Rolling Stones. I don't think he's really taking heed of those lyrics right now. I know, I know. Hillary Clinton chose Katie Tunstall, Suddenly I See, American Girl by Tom Petty, and Nine to Five by Dolly Parton. Love that. And Obama obviously had the best playlist in both elections, including hits such as Think by Aretha Franklin and Signed, Sealed, Delivered by Stevie Wonder. And both Biden this year and Obama in 2012 chose our walk-on music for the High Low Experience live shows that we did Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson. Oh, that's such a good one. Absolutely. Okay, so Theresa May obviously wasn't elected, so she wouldn't have got any walk-on music. So we can only speculate what that walk-on music might have been. Do you think it might have been... My neck, my back, lick my pussy and my crack. I think that would have been a (laughs) a a likely choice. I actually have quite weird intel... I think, which I think I might have already said on the high low when Theresa May took over all those years ago, that when there was speculation over who was going to replace David Cameron, that in number 10, everyone started singing the Christina Millian song from AM to PM, but with the lyrics from TM to PM. <laughs> Little bit of fun, little bit of fun in 10 Downing Street. Speaking of a little bit of fun, Pfizer have announced a potential vaccine tested on 43,500 people with no side effects. Within hours, EasyJet shares rose 34% and hashtag summer 2021 started trending on Twitter with people sharing how much partying they plan to do. I mean, it's going to be a long old road and... I don't normally agree with Boris Johnson, but I agree with what he said about it mustn't give us a kind of false sense of Mm -hmm. safety Mm -hmm. and uh, immunity. That being said, I did send an exhaustive list um, (laughs) to a few people on WhatsApp of all the various festivals I intend to go to. And I also started drafting in my head a sort of plea that I think I'm going to send to my entire email and phone contact book list when parties are allowed to happen again. Just basically saying that not only will I like to come to any party that anyone is hosting if they need any bodies, but I also would consider paying to go to parties. I'll You're pay to attend. saying that. Someone's but I have to scrape you off the floor next July. You're going to someone's wedding, someone's retirement do. I don't care. You name a party, I'll be there, front of the conga line, handing out the drinks. Yes, please. Sea snaking your way across the floor, worming your way across the floor. Yeah, absolute guarantee. So book me in. I'd love to come. (laughs) 
I do agree with you. Not not on the paying to go to people's weddings. Um, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but I do worry that people will see the vaccine as a get out of jail free card, which it's obviously not going to be. It'll take months to unroll. And then there's the fact that 16% of people, according to research from King's College London in August, wouldn't take a COVID vaccine. But I don't want to bring the tone down. I know that people really, really needed this lift. I just, as you say, I want us to stay pragmatic about it because... We're not there yet. We've still got a whole second lockdown and I'm sure some more peaks to get through. But I won't bring the tone down. I know people really, really needed this lift and it is, it's such exciting news and God, so long awaited. Well, I've got a couple of pieces of good news as well. More on the fringes of the news cycle, as uh, you can probably imagine. First piece of good news, a couple got married in a pre-lockdown ceremony to officially become Mr and Mrs White Christmas. Tilly Christmas and Kieran White, both 20, from Bridport, Dorset. It took us time to twig that our surnames came together as White Christmas, Mrs White Christmas said. We first realised at our secondary school prom when our friend uploaded pictures to social media using the hashtag White Christmas. I wanted to keep my surname and I've grown up loving it and I wanted to keep the name going. It just so happens the man I'm marrying has the perfect surname to go with it. I thought you meant they specifically had got married because their surnames made White Christmas, which seemed a perhaps a tenuous reason to bind yourself legally to someone. But now you're saying it's an added bonus. I like. Yeah, and it's actually worth looking at the the wedding pictures. They look so happy. And she's wearing a sort of little white fluffy jacket. She looks gorgeous and they look very Christmassy. It made me very happy, that story. I don't know why I sort of read it like three times. I just think... <laughs> I don't know, there's something about it that felt really magical. And then, well, leading on from that, good news story too. A heartbroken swan has found love again. No, I'm not talking about myself. A swan... (laughs) A A swan who lives alone at a Highgate pond after the death of her partner four years ago has found a companion. Swans mate for life, so it was a devastating ordeal when a male swan died by flying into a building. Swan volunteer Louisa Green said, since then his widow has never left the heath, never ventured to a flock to find someone new and has spent her days by herself flying between the Highgate ponds as if she's looking for him. The first year after he died, she even built a nest and laid unfertilised eggs. And whenever a male had landed on the pond in recent years, he only lasts a few days before she pushes him away. Long story short, she escaped the heath, was found on someone's roof with an injured wing, had to be taken to a special swan sanctuary near the heath to recuperate, and there she met a fellow rescue swan. And they partnered up, they've gone back to the heath, they're now inseparable, and the story has inspired a book. It's called There's Something About Wallace, Lockdown Love on Hampstead Heath, written by Louisa Green, the swan rescuer. Aimed at children, both young and old, the book also includes a section on swan facts and we will include a link to purchase in the show notes. So he is called Wallace. What is she called? I don't know. There we go. Betchdale test. The man is named. The woman remains nameless. I don't know. I'm sure she's got a name. She's just referred to in the news. There's like a lot of news stories about this. It's like a big... Yeah, I saw one. (laughs) (laughs) Saw one, didn't open it knew that someone else would open it for me. And that someone is a swan living in a flat in Camden. So there you go. (laughs) Now, listen, those stories are great. But the best thing that happened in the last week, yeah, even more than Biden becoming president, even more than a vaccine on a horizon. I'm joking. I'm joking. Is that I found out that Jamie Dornan, my one 
and only true celebrity crush. I think I've said that about someone else before. Can you remember who? Because I was thinking, I thought, I'm sure I said this about someone else and I feel like only Dolly will remember I this. do remember. I think it's James McAvoy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, Jamie Dornan's above that. Okay, Jamie Dornan's my one and only. I have to say, you have... Yeah. I was going to say something vulgar. You've been pretty excited about Jamie Dornan for a very long time. Don't say something vulgar, for goodness sake. He mentioned my obsession with the 205 paparazzi pictures of him where he wears a roster of eye-watering statement belts on the How to Fail podcast. And my little ears fell off in delighted shock. Poor little Pandy, though, she was quite nervy. Can you imagine your, your biggest crush saying that they've listened to you slag off their clothes? Didn't slag them off. If, if that happened... Slag them off. Well. I, I was expressing... <laughs> he didn't seem to think you were praising them. I was expressing delight <laughs> for early noughties fashion, which includes seatbelt belts. I had one. I had one along with some extraordinary clothing. Jeans that unpoppered all the way up. Skirts over trousers. What were some of the diciest, diciest naughty trends? There were so many. Handkerchief hem tops. I kind of love those, actually. Well, listen, Panda, you know that he's listening now. So what would you like to say to him? Come on, this is quite a big moment. If I knew that my biggest crush listened to the high-low, there'd be plenty I'd say. Hey, thanks for stopping by. No biggie. Enjoy. <laughs> And my wife obviously listens to your podcast, but she also listens to the High Low, which I've listened to a bit myself. And I know those girls have, Millie will just come in sometimes chuckling and say, yeah, they brought you up and uh, they were sort of digging through old paparazzi, which you're about to do right in front of me now, which is uh, dreadful. Another thing that I found out this week that I still cannot quite accept as fact, but all evidence suggests that it is, is that teenage TikTokers are going wild for Le Creuset. Have you heard about this? TikTok is, it's just like learning about a foreign land. I'm really sad that, do you think we should just like dig into this more rather than being just these like old watching from the sidelines? This is like the Draco Malfoy thing all over again. I want to get it and I don't. Why are they going mad for Le Creuset? It's really expensive. It's very heavy. What are they doing with it? Panda, we should dig in, in in an analytical and detective sense, but trust me, we should not get TikTok accounts. I've said it once, I've yeah, said it yeah. a million times. Okay. I right. find it to be very cringe yeah, okay. when millennials have TikTok accounts. Okay. We cannot go there. All right, fine. Even if the Le Creuset pull is strong. So, yes, the very expensive French kitchenware, mainly casserole dishes for literally hundreds of pounds, are being filmed on TikTok. The face reports normally uh, by teenagers wearing Harry Styles outfits, showing off about all the colours that they have and soundtracked by the Irish pop star Hosier. The face goes on to say, at the time of writing, Le Creuset as a hashtag has been viewed over 12 million times. So are they the new status objects? Are they like Yeezys or... Well, the journalist speculates on whether this is just an extension of the cottage core thing, mm, mm. which obviously had this big uh, surge during lockdown when everyone was housebound and there was this kind of move towards coziness and the kind of commodification of, of hominess and coziness. So I suppose it's a 
natural step on from that. I still find it quite strange. How are they affording all these La Cruzes? Maybe it's their parents. They must just be borrowing it from their parents. What is the point of it? They just like the colours, apparently. <laughs> they just like, they like showing off the colours and they like, they, you know, they think they're pretty and, yeah. I'm sure we're missing part of this story and I don't like not getting it. So, hi, Lois. I know. You know what to do. Write in, tell us, please. This week, I very much enjoyed learning about Amazon's bungled launch in Sweden, which I wanted to share with you, Dolly, where let's just say the Google Translate wasn't quite up to speed. I think technically this story should have been in last week's episode as Amazon launched in Sweden at the end of October, but I don't want to let the timeline stop me. Some of the best mistranslations were Calvin Klein boxes described as men's luggage trunks. <laughs> A baking mould was described as suitable for faeces, goose water and bread. Ooh. Ooh. What's goose water? That must be an idiom that hasn't translated. (laughs) A collection of Second World War era Russian infantry figurines were translated as Russian toddlers. Love that. For sale. Products featuring cats were hit particularly hard with the lewd double meaning of the word pussy leading to a T-shirt with a cat on it being labelled with a vulgar Swedish term for vagina. Oof. A Stockholm-based games developer named Jake Schadel tweeted, golf clapping for everyone at Amazon involved in the genius decision of doing garbage machine translation for 95% of the site from a language that most people in Sweden can understand. Of course, most Scandinavians speak really good English. Amazon have responded that they had to launch 150 million products on one day. And so on day one, of course, there were going to be some that had not quite passed muster. So if you're looking for any goose water, it probably won't be on Amazon for much longer. So get it now, limited edition. So Dolly, we're also yet to talk about Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday on a private island. Oh yeah, I'm surprised they sort of passed me by. Well, don't worry. I'm not going to talk about it now. It happened a few weeks ago. How many people did she have there, just out of interest? I think there were about 30 and they had to quarantine beforehand so that they could not wear masks on this island. Right. Obviously, there are a few things that were highlighted by people, such as it felt good to pretend we were normal for a little while. But then, as other people pointed out, sure, pandemic probably isn't the only reason most people don't rent a private island for a 40th. But that is normal to the Kardashians. So you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt. Anyway, people were bemused and infuriated in equal measure. But I think the much more interesting story involving Kim Kardashian is one that broke yesterday, revealing that Dr. Anthony Fauci of the US's Corona Task Force did a private Zoom at the start of the pandemic with a bunch of celebrities, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Ashton Kutcher, Katy Perry, Orlando Bloom, and Kim Kardashian. Why? It was a whole bunch of movie stars and some sports figures and they wanted to know about what they could do to stay safe, about wearing masks and avoiding crowds, said Dr. Fauci. There's about three dozen of them, I think. Each of them has enormous numbers of followings on their social media accounts. I could say to them, for example, it's important to wear a mask and they get on their accounts and say, wear a mask. And it goes out to an additional couple of million people, said Fauci. The call took place at the end of April. And there were musicians, athletes, actors, models. Okay, so actually, initially I thought that was mad. And actually, I think that's 
quite responsible. I agree. I did a pretty quick vault fast on that. At first I thought, how ridiculous is that the best use of his time? He's clearly got a pretty essential role at the moment. And then I thought, well, yes, celebrities have such an enormous pull, sway, traction in 2020. It's a quite, quite a savvy idea to use them as communication tools. If they can encourage less people to not wear masks or become anti-vaxxers, then Dr. Fauci's got a pretty good idea. Do you think this could work with anything else, this sort of Senate of Celebrities approach? Um, well, I think it's working on us, you know, subliminally every day and night of our existence, most of us on some level. I think basically what that is an example of is, I suppose, media training. I suppose it's like highly specific um, science-based media training. And I think the usefulness of it would not so much be sending direct messages to people of how to conduct yourself in a time of global disaster, but making sure that they're leading by example. So, you know, for most of us, your our masks slipping down, so our noses are exposed. It's, you know, it's a small mistake. It happens. It, it doesn't matter for, for those brief seconds where that happens for someone in the public eye with lots and lots of particularly young followers to see that image would be potentially really dangerous, which is mm. why I just want to yank it over Corbyn's nose. Why has he not got someone next to him to yank it up? He needs a smaller one. Have you seen pictures of him with his mask on? No, I haven't. And it does really annoy me, the nose thing, because you do see it a lot and you might as well just not wear one. If you're not going to cover your nose. But I don't think he's doing that as a statement. I think he must just, he, he just, he needs a smaller one. <laughs> I don't understand why someone's not just yanking it over his conk. Giving him a tiny, a tiny baby mask. What about if there was like yeah. an actual Senate of celebrities with no, no real governing power? So in that sense, the opposite of Donald Trump, but an advisory board that's entirely informed by facts and medical research. So if there was like a hundred of them that, given like monthly briefings of how they can i don't know i can't decide if that's riveting or terrifying quite freaky. well i mean the senate of celebrities that you're talking about i think that senate already exists i think this no is... there's too many of them this needs to be like properly curated it's too many random a b c d e f g h i j k l n p sounding off at the moment what and what you're saying is so there would be a select few with the most widespread influence and power and they would be informed of science and fact and news and current affairs to make sure that the information that they're feeding through to their followers, irrespective of their viewpoint, that the facts are correct. Yeah, they'd be like, so you know how people are ambassadors for L'Oreal or something? They'd be ambassadors for facts. Fact ambassadors. Yeah, which I think, like... <laughs> pre-post-truth is just called being a responsible human. <laughs> but now I completely understand why it feels like that needs to be, like, marshaled so much. Just so much absolute rubbish out there. Speaking of celebrities, a pretty shocking accusation has been brought against Martin Bashir, famously of the There Were Three of Us in the Marriage panorama interview with Princess Diana, that he forged documents in order to persuade 
Princess Diana to do that interview with him. Yes, and you know how I found this out this week because I listened to part four and five of the You're Wrong About podcast mini-series about Princess Diana's divorce, which is one of the best mini-series I've ever listened to. Oh my God, they've done an episode four and five of it, The Gift That Keeps On Giving. I'm so glad you're enjoying that so much. As well as being on You're Wrong About, this has also come to light in the news this week as ITV is preparing to air an interview with Matt Wiesler, a graphic designer who was asked by Martin Bashir to mock up fake bank statements that allegedly helped Martin Bashir to get that interview with Princess Diana. And these documents that Matt Wiesler mocked up gave the impression that people connected to the royal family were selling stories on them to the media. And Earl Spencer, Princess Diana's brother, Charles Spencer, has said that this was a major factor in why Diana agreed to do what well, why he int- why he introduced Martin Bashir because it was him that did the introduction why he introduced Martin Bashir to Princess Diana and why she agreed to do it interestingly it was investigated at the time Martin Bashir was cleared of wrongdoing in 1996 by the BBC and Matt Visa was basically fired um and he left graphic design and worked for a bicycle design company in Devon so it's obviously there's a lot of speculation there and I haven't watched the ITV documentary that's it's had a lot of hype and it comes out the Diana interview Revenge of a Princess um comes out around the same time as the crown comes back do you think is that deliberate timing because there's some amazing stills of princess the actress playing princess Diana in her meringue dress that 80s dress. Yeah, and incidentally, I've just seen nothing but praise for that actress and her portrayal of Princess Diana. Apparently, it is really very uncanny. Shall we try and watch it all for next week? The Diana interview and A Thing of the Crown. Yes, I mean, honestly, this Diana miniseries, I cannot thank you enough for introducing me to it. I was absorbed in a way that I haven't been in a podcast sort of nonfiction for such a long time. They're so thorough and inquisitive and funny and lighthearted about this story. And I'm now, I'm yeah, I, I want to read and understand and learn and watch everything about the Diana story, having previously had really very little interest. Well, let's let's see if we can come back to it next week then, having watched it. And Tina Brown, incidentally, yeah. previous guest on the Hilo, she wrote a really brilliant book called The Princess Diana Chronicles, which you're wrong about saying, a lot of people say is a lot less biased than Andrew Morton's autobiography of her. Well, interestingly, their conclusion on these like two seminal biographies of Princess Diana is that the Andrew Morton one is too fawning Mm. and the Tina Brown one is too critical. And that somewhere in between those two accounts must lie the truth. In the mailbag this week, in response to our discussion of Sean Connery's death and the way that it was reported and the fact that lots of obituaries seemed to miss out, some incredibly controversial comments that he'd made on domestic abuse, we were intrigued and grateful for this letter from a person who calls himself, who calls themselves anonymous obituary whistleblower. I used to work at a newspaper in the UK and work closely with the obituaries desk. I thought I'd email in to shed some light on their process. 
If a public figure is old or even relatively young but expected to die soon, their obituaries will have been written long ago. The likelihood of that person dying in the next few years is high and the story of their life will by and large remain unchanged. On quiet days, most obits desk will look down their list of elderly public figures and choose which one to write. If that person is knighted at some point, someone on the obits desk might go into the Word doc and update it. However, these files often sit unopened for years until the public figure dies. On the day they die, the obits desk will check for the errors and add a line or two at the end about family members who have survived the person as well as the day they died. At the start of the obituary, they'll fill in the person's age where they had originally written Sean Connery has died, aged, whatever. What I'd never thought about before and started thinking about after listening to your conversation in the latest episode is how this system doesn't allow for public values to change over time. While conversations around domestic violence don't get as much attention and sensitivity as I'd like them to, they at least get more than they used to. I don't know this for certain, but I imagine that when most obituaries for Sean Connery were first drafted, his history of domestic violence wasn't seen as worth mentioning by the writers. There are probably lots of other nuanced reasons why it wasn't included in the vast majority of obituaries, like the demographic of most obituary writers, the lingering uneasiness to mar the reputation of a man, etc. But I bet that when the obituary was written, it has also been a factor. This is really interesting. I knew that obituaries were written well in advance, but I didn't know that they were written years and years in advance. And particularly with someone like Sean Connery, I think he was in his Mm. 90s, wasn't he, when he died? So potentially that obituary could have been sitting there unchanged for you know 10 years that is fascinating and actually quite hopeful i found that quite hopeful to read that these things aren't being deliberately ignored it's just an archaic rather than a reactive system which it shouldn't be but it does it feels less cynical Mm. very interesting yeah exactly we also had a few emails from male listeners to say that no not november is actually bad for men no not november is a dangerous and stupid idea that could actually put men's health at risk writes the listener prostate cancer has overtaken breast cancer as the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the uk There is an increasing body of evidence drawn from studies around the world highlighting that one of the few things a man can do to reduce the chance of prostate cancer is to ejaculate more often. And there's actually a campaign going around at the moment to end No Not November. Mm, That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I found that really interesting because we'd obviously been very flippant about a slightly disgusting sounding challenge. And as ever, there's some really enormous and quite concerning truths behind that. So I'm very grateful for those listeners for sharing that. And please, those who can, prepare your spittoon. Support for the Hilo comes from Osmology. It's candle season at home, so get down and cosy with your favourite scented candle. Us basic bitches at the Hilo love a scented candle. Absolutely no surprises there. Preferably with a bed sock, singular, and a glass of red wine. Osmology curates the world's best-scented candle brands to make shopping for candles online easier than ever. From luxury brands such as Sere Trudon and Scandinavian candle experts Scandinavisk to independent British candle makers like Hobo & Co and Earl of East, you'll find the perfect treat for yourself or gift for someone else at Osmology. Osmology has hundreds of beautiful scents available to shop online, as well as new festive limited editions such as the amazing Holiday Rituals collection by Boy Smells, portable Christmas tree candle by DS and Durga, and spiced pumpkin candle by PF Candle Company. One of my favourites on Osmology is number 10 Sweet Grapefruit Scented Candle by PF Candle Co. I love grapefruit and it's very delicious in a scented candle, I've discovered. 
I love Cinderose scented candle by Boy Smells. Go to osmology.co to get 10% off plus free shipping. Use code HILO, H-I-G-H-L-O-W at checkout. Thank you very much to Osmology. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Dolly, what have you been enjoying this week? Well, on your recommendation, I watched the Maggie Hambling documentary called Making Love with the Paint, which is about the artist Maggie Hambling, 75-year-old artist Maggie Hambling, and her work and her process and her life and her lovers and what inspires her. And oh, I just loved it so much. I found her so inspirational I found her commitment to her art and her kind of seeming dismissal of perception of her just just really edifying and just I loved it I thought it was every woman I know should watch it particularly women who have a job where they're creating things and they're putting it out into the world it's such a lesson on what artistic integrity and bravery is I adored it she has such enormous conviction also I'm so chuffed because this is the second recommendation of mine you've taken on and that's a once in a blue moon <laughs> thing to get Dolly Alderton to take on someone else's recommendation because you are so independent of thought so I am well very flattered right now less of well a thank you glad you enjoyed it is I was like, oh, I've got to watch Emily in Paris. I've got to watch one episode for Panda. I swore to her that I would have got to watch one episode. Watch one episode. Yeah, watch one episode. I was like, what is this shite? Can't believe that that's half an hour of my life I'll never get back. Slagged it off to all my friends. What did I do? Watched episode two. Slagged it off further. Then I watched episode three. Did you? Evening passed. Ten fucking episodes. Five hours of my life gone. So it can't be that shite because I watched the whole thing. The whole thing why what is it oh, what have they done cliche i honestly now i'm obsessed with getting to the the bottom of this i need to analyze why i was so hooked in in praise of it i will say <laughs> i think the you're in the world sister good. i think there were lots of kind of twists and turns and things that connected that felt like it was satisfying the dialogue was terrible the characterization was terrible the depiction of france was cliched, unoriginal, offensive. And I don't think the clothes and styling was that good. I mean, I've never liked that kind of Patricia Fields styling, as in I think she's incredibly clever and she's iconic and I love that she has a very specific trademark, but it's not, I much prefer what the French girl wears in it, you know, the slightly more boring wardrobe. But why are you so flabbergasted that it's so popular? It's nothing new that when we're feeling stressed and the nights are getting darker or colder, that people like watching ridiculous fluff. You're right, you're right. Every single week, 
every single week I watch something completely ridiculous or read something completely ridiculous that I think has a holy plot and a ridiculous premise and absurd lines and I just enjoy it for what it is. But you're right, Emily in Paris has sent people dotty. They're like, how are we enjoying this? And it does, it does, as we discussed before, it does have some some serious issues as well, like, that I totally understand. That's a separate point to its fault. Yeah, I- I'm just interested in, in how they kept me coming back. Hooked. And actually, mm. I think you're completely right. If I'm being really fair, this programme and its packaging and the world and the characters it's really no different to those kind of very bog standard mid noughties rom-com really I think that's that's the tone of it and we all know that those can be very comforting I think the other thing that pulled me in is that French chef (laughs) yeah there's a lot about there's a lot about him on the uh Internet. He there was, a, is there was one buff. woman tweeted about how she was at school with him and he was the heartthrob even when they were at school. I mean, he does have a kind of beauty that's like, he looks a bit like a blonde Elvis. Like he looks like so classically beautiful. Obviously immediately went onto his Instagram handle, looked at the mutual followers, just 15 fucking thirsty girls that I know. And I thought, no, not gonna, not gonna join you. Not this time. I have also been watching so much telly. I've been eaten by telly. What have you been watching? Well, I watched quite in the vein of what we were talking about before. I watched a chronic Christmas movie called Holidate. I think it's like number <laughs> I think it's number 1 on Netflix at the moment and it is just so spotty. <laughs> it's the batchiest thing I've ever watched. Holidate. Holidate. Can we talk about the undoing? <gasps> That's very good, isn't it? Gave me the willies. Gave me the willies. I couldn't sleep. Put the willies up, you. Put the willies up, mate. I couldn't sleep after episode three. Oh, God, you big old puss. I'm finding it really... I know, I know. It's really creeping me out. I don't know why it's having a real effect on me. I can only watch it during the day, I've decided. Very babyish. What do you think? Hugh Grant is so creepy, isn't he? I'm actually finding Nicole Kidman quite creepy. Ooh, so for anyone who hasn't come to The Undoing yet, it's a sky drama which they are painfully and very chicly drip-feeding old school, no dropping of the box set all at once, one episode a week. We've had three so far. It's the only thing I watch live, even sit through the sodding ad breaks. And Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant play a Tony, I love that expression for like a bougie, a bougie couple. They play like a Tony couple in Manhattan. He's an oncologist, kid's oncologist. She's a therapist. Uh, They send their child to like the sort of Gossip Girl Academy. My husband thinks it is actually the f- the school that they use in Gossip Girl. Don't know. Well, a mother at the school is murdered and suspicion immediately lands on Jonathan Fraser, Nicole Kidsman's husband, the oncologist. I won't say any more than that. Anyway, there's so much more, isn't there, Dolly? Lots more. Lots more. Beautiful sets, beautiful wardrobe. Nicole Kidman, let me just say that distress does not seem to mar the colourful tactileness of her outfits. Oh, yeah. The outfits are very interesting. They're very... I wish I wore 
that kind of stuff when I was just like really pretty bummed out. Like she looks fantastic, but they're quite not a fan. Well, no, they they they're very elegant and she looks amazing but she looks a bit like a haunted doll in in a way that's like very fitting with the with the show but those sort of like they're quite pagan the outfits the jewel colored long flappy coats i thought you'd be quite into them these sort of these sort of druid claret velvet capes and stuff <laughs> i like i like it but it is quite druid <laughs> I really like I just really like that she's gone back to having curly hair like she did in the 90s and I'd like to think that's because we've come out of that really long ridiculous period where lots of people with lovely curly hair were straightening it like excessively mm. and she literally looks like yeah. she's about 20 again she's it's like eyes wide shut time yeah yes it is there is something about her look. She's returned to that Nicole Kidman 90s ethereal look that I was so obsessed with. Do you remember? I've been reminded of this shop recently, a shop that existed in the 90s and noughties called Past Times. Yes, they made soaps shaped like ho- rocking horses. Is that yeah, not still around? Get, yeah, probably I don't think so. Survived, yeah. But they, they make like, um, like Elizabethan mint sweetie boxes and art deco calendars and it was for girls who I probably include myself in this description thought that they were sort of of a different time who thought they were very whimsical and very fey and I remember I used to go and sort of float around the St Albans branch and touch the the frilly lace of the Victorian 90s and I think Nicole Kidman's got a very she was the sort of pin-up girl I think for the past times shopper Interesting. So you loved pastimes. I hated pastimes. There was there was there was one in Colchester as well, and I always ended up in there like waiting for mum or something after I'd been to Debenhams, and I found it. Maybe I did. Maybe I just don't think I was whimsical. You were looking for the whimsy, and I was looking for solid, solid truths in a modern world. <laughs> My mum loved pastimes as well. I think it was like the only shop we agreed on that we liked was past times anyway well it was my meeting spot for for many years and moving on with uh telly queen's gambit have you dug into that no but i've got to watch it everyone's telling me i've got to watch it yeah i devoured that uh this weekend in the evening times it's got actually like the undoing there are some fantastic sets going on i don't know if i'm just more aware of sets a friend of mine's the set decorator on The Crown, so I now kind of have an Ooh. insight into the the work and the sort of talent and sheer research that goes into it. So I, I really notice sets a lot more now, but the sets in The Queen's Gambit are amazing. And Anya Taylor-Joy is just so fantastic as an orphan who becomes a chess prodigy. It's incredibly moving. The support roles are just absolutely brilliant as well it's so fascinating i think it's so so good something i have found very interesting this is not a spoiler again about um the reviews of it though is a few have said that it's a bit um fantastical that as a young girl a teenager kind of traveling the world as a chess prodigy the show doesn't show her being taken advantage of enough that that's basically something that's right. come out from it. 
And I was thinking about this and I was like, is it unrealistic or is it just really lovely to see a show that has this optimism and this incredible sense of intellectual poise from this woman who's overcome so much in order to yeah. triumph? Like, do we always need to see that? Oh, I really want to watch this. I've had a few people recommend it to me. And another thing I really liked that Anya Taylor-Joy said about the show is that in any sex scenes, they're very un, you know, you don't see anything at all. And that has been something that people have commented on. And she said, well, this is really about Beth's intellectual journey. You know, you're inside her mind for the whole show. It's not about her body. You don't need to see what her body's doing during sex. And that reminds me of something else we were talking about with, I think it was the director of Little Birds. She said that during a sex scene, it's, you know, she doesn't film random bits of the body because what's most important to her, what's most important to women during sex is the mind. And I just, yeah, I really loved their approach with that. Um, I think it's such a good Netflix show. Yeah, I think you'll love that. And the other thing that I really want to recommend that I just adored was Been So Long, a sort of musical rom-com, I suppose, like La La Land is, with Michaela Cole that came out in 2018. And you can watch it in on Netflix now. And I remember seeing around the time that I May Destroy You came out, people were saying that this was a film that she was brilliant in. I absolutely loved this film. It's so original and ambitious. Not all of the parts or the plot work, but Michaela is so luminous as a single mother with a completely over-the-top brilliant best friend who is cynical about falling in love again. And they there's just loads of singing in it. And it's it's kind it's a it's kind of bonkers, but I just found it incredibly uplifting. I think I mean, we already know she's electric on screen. She is by far the best in it, although I really did love the supporting lead of her best friend but I found it incredibly uplifting it's a different look at London I think it's a really vital piece of cinema actually to look at how um, musicals can be done differently and more diversely in London can be represented with more diversity there's a ton of different things going in it I really recommend it and you can find that on Netflix now that sounds utterly brilliant I will definitely be watching that thank you for the recommendation dolly what have you been enjoying have you spent unlike me have you spent any time away from the box well, i've got two pieces that i read in the newspaper that i wanted to talk about the first is one that really saddened me but i think is so important uh, to read is a piece that was in the sunday times this week by the writer and podcaster octavia bright on what her life has been like over the last six months and what life has been like for her family um, as her father with Alzheimer's has been in a care home. Her account is devastating to read, but I'm sure resonant for many people. She speaks of how strange it is to want to see her dad and to make him feel safe and remind him of who he is and who his loved ones are and to, to embrace him and to, to hold his hand while also knowing how dangerous that would be and what a strange tension those two 
facts are. And she also reassuringly speaks with great admiration and praise for the nurses who work in the home about the care that they take, the measures that they've been taking. She speaks of one nurse who paid for taxis out of her own pocket during the peak infection rate of of the pandemic um, so that she wouldn't have to take the tube to risk her her chance of infection spreading. And she also speaks of how dementia is a disease where short periods of time can feel like a great loss. And she writes this heartbreaking comparison that it's almost like when a baby is developing. The reverse is often true of, of, of a loved one with advanced dementia. You miss a chunk of time and, and potentially you miss a part of who they are. I'm not sure it's possible to escape feelings of guilt when losing a parent, but they are particularly strong under the present conditions. Logically, I know I haven't abandoned him, but emotionally it often feels as though I have. The guilt became almost intolerable when he was rushed to hospital with pneumonia and I wasn't allowed to be by his side. His life was in the hands of doctors and nurses I would never meet, and I was acutely aware that his cognitive impairment meant he could not advocate for himself. The nursing home had promised to allow an end-of-life visit, but if he were to die in hospital, I wouldn't be allowed to be with him. While he was in the ICU, something about his new surroundings seemed to reconnect lost neural pathways, and he once again had access to vocabulary and a form of self-expression that had been lost for months. Even that was bittersweet. What if it was my last chance? Alzheimer's is a disease full of last opportunities. Part of the cruel symmetry of the illness means the end of life mirrors the start. Just as babies develop whole new aspects of cognition in days, a person with dementia can lose them overnight. Every week counts. This, combined with the mayhem of COVID, has made me think differently about loss. It sounds simplistic, but if you focus only on what is gone, you forget to look for what is left behind. In the context of old age and ill health, this encourages the idea that being elderly or infirm somehow makes you less of a person. I have thought this repeatedly in recent months, reading about care home staff encouraged to sign do not resuscitate orders without discussion and homes being given inadequate PPE. By failing to act while the virus spread, the government was, it seemed, making a value judgment that people like my father were necessary collateral damage. That is neither fair nor right. My father is not the same as he was before his illness, but like countless other people who are elderly or infirm, he's no less human and our relationship remains as important as ever. I just think it's so important to remember these particular stories and these particular people in these families whose lives and normality and stability have been so upturned by by the care home tragedy. And it is a tragedy because... These are the people that are most vulnerable, whose lives are most in the hands of others, and particularly in the hands of our government and its policies. They're the people for whom these constraints and these regulations affect most pressingly, but they are also the people most dependent on human contact and communication and care. So I'm very grateful for her for sharing her experience, which I'm sure is very difficult to articulate. And it made me really think about those families and those patients and just really, really hold them in my thoughts. That's such a moving piece. And I, I I really can't imagine what it would be to be in that scenario. I know that that is just the worst case scenario for so many of us. So to be living it now. 
And it reminds me of the piece that I spoke about recently by Jia Yang Fan for The mm. New Yorker about her mother in hospital in New York. And mm. like you mm. say, just it's just devastating. I'm just so sorry. I bought the um, New York Times on Sunday uh, because it obviously had the Biden victory as its headline. And I always like keeping those papers uh, for, you know, posterity, the non-existent grandchildren. And while I was reading it, I came across Modern Love, which I haven't I haven't read for a while. And I really liked this um, particular edition of Modern Love, which is about a woman who met a man really late at night in a bar in New York. Turned out he was a chef in a really um, competitive, impressive, high-end restaurant. And he is a monomaniacal cook and completely devoted to his job. So he obviously wouldn't finish his shift until the wee small hours of the morning. And they started their courtship on this weird upside-down time on this weird upside down schedule. She says of their first date, I'd pulled myself out of bed and waited by the door. When he arrived, his arms full of groceries, I wondered if I could still be dreaming. A late night date ripped from some forgotten romantic comedy. A date of eating when I wasn't hungry and talking when I should be sleeping, all for the whimsical hell of it, plus the food was good. That's how he courted me, only after the kitchen had closed. A few times a week, he would come over between midnight and 2 a.m., usually a couple of hours after I'd gone to bed, and would stay until before dawn, cooking, eating and laughing. Then he would take his long subway ride from my Upper East Side apartment back to Brooklyn. Only a few hours later, it would be time for me to go to work, which I could barely manage. I was exhausted to the point of being nearly delusional. A whole new activity had been added to my nights while my day's activities remained the same. I would wake at my regular time, though there was no more need for breakfast, shower, dress and head to work, where I would sit at my desk from 9am to 6pm. Being up with him at all hours made me too tired to do anything beyond sleep, work and eat. At the same time, seeing him was exhilarating as we invented ways to get to know each other while the rest of the world slept. Soon he was teaching me how the meals were made. I stood in the warmth of my growing feelings and gaslit stove, learning to heat my pan to a temperature the Michelin guide deemed acceptable for a two-inch thick cut of prime beef. None of my friends were dating like this. It was a rebellious engagement, like two children up past bedtime. I just loved that kind of dreamlike account of this entire love story happening in this pocket, small pocket of time that they both ha both had free, which was when his work finished and her work began, so between 2 a.m. and 9 a.m. every night. And she goes on to describe how the incompatibility of their schedules meant that their relationship broke down and... Um, also because he was so, I know, and it was because he was so dedicated to his work. Um, it felt like he needed to be with someone who worked in the same industry as him, perhaps, and, and understood what the, how demanding that, that work could be, uh, both physically and mentally and on his, his, his life. And then it's just this really beautiful meditation at the end of how she thinks of him all the time now that she walks through Manhattan with all its restaurants closed. And it becomes this amazing final thought and loving thought that she sends out to all those people for whom restaurants and the the schedule and the pulse in the life of, of that occupation has just been 
wiped and it becomes this kind of duality of her thinking of him with enough time between their breakup with admiration and respect and love and and thinking of that whole industry with with admiration and respect and love and sending out hope to them it's beautiful really really i forget how amazingly paced those modern love entries are me too thank you for that reminder you've made me think about all my favorite entries in the modern love book or some of which completely broke my heart Mm. and of course there's the brilliant podcast and there's the amazon show isn't it yeah i've got a brain like a sieve memory like a sieve but there was that amazon show there's a whole modern love world out there for anyone who's yet to dig in and that's a lovely note to end on as well Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show and you can buy our merch, thehiloshop.com. 100% of proceeds go to charity. For November, it is to fair share. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Your love.